anybody there? Hello, hello. Good morning. Good morning. Can you see me? Hey, yeah, I can see you. Very festive um, audio Thank spot you. you've got there. Uh, this is this is my little nook with the uh, Christmas lights, and it makes me feel kind of like warm and cozy. So uh, <laughs> great to meet Rather you. Rather than in a dark box. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, I feel that like I'm I'm like sad enough as is. You know, like I need I need some like cheering up with my lights. Yeah, and everything. <laughs> <laughs> I mean. <laughs> Seems pretty solitary. So, that that's right. That's right. So it's wonderful to meet you and a pleasure yeah, to get to well. Yeah, check out your work. And without further ado, do you mind if we get this thing rolling? Sure. Do you mind if we start at the beginning? The uh the internet tells me you're from Detroit. Is that correct? Yeah, just outside of Detroit. Okay. Um, it was it was interesting as I, you know, I'm about to put out this book, Nature Trail Stories. I more so see um, my, uh, my childhood in a very like industrial setting, um, where there's not a lot of nature. Um, my current way of life feels like a reaction in uh, response to that, like seeking mm -hmm. a little more nature. Um, because I, I did not love the busyness of growing up next to a huge freeway, which was considered like America's Autobahn. And <laughs> cars everywhere everything gray like i i did not find that particularly calming to my body <laughs> or mind um but i definitely uh it led me to appreciate little uh pieces of the natural world where they can be found mm. so you feel like you're coming back full circle in some respects as you're putting together this work that seems to be kind of where things are resonating with uh with this collection yeah yeah, absolutely. I mean, and they're not all um, about like specific nature trails. Some of them are just about finding little bits of of the natural world and like suburbs or in cities and and just little spaces that we make um, mm -hmm. to to find solitude and a little bit of escape from the noise of of the human world. Right, and that was one of the things that I wanted to talk to you uh, a little bit later on, but I'm glad you bring it up now. In the first stories that I was reading, there was this very deep sense of an internal voice that was, that was, there was that sense of, of wanting to escape to a more peaceful kind of place. Um, but you, I don't know if you referred to this in one of our emails, but you, you mentioned Borkor. <laughs> can you, can you tell me what that is? Cause yeah. that was just such a <laughs> peculiar phrase. I'd never heard that before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't remember when that occurred to me, but I think I just some years ago when I started writing these kind of quiet stories where nothing really happens, quote unquote, but it's more so about internal conflict and reflection. I, you know, I felt a little bit frustrated with myself because I was always reading about plot and wanting to write these novels that were more plot driven. Mm -hmm. um, but whenever I would sit down and write a story for myself, just because I felt the impulse to write it, it tended to be more of an internal, um, reflective and quiet story where there's not a whole lot of external conflict. Um, it usually has to do with uh, where the characters in a moment where they're reflecting back on their past. And that is reflected in the more quiet um, instances of observation of the natural world. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I kind of just said that about my stories at one point in time, like to poke fun at myself because I just <laughs> was like, 
the pieces that I publish, I don't expect, you know, all of my friends and family to find it like enthralling or exciting. It's not a, um, a Stephen King novel or anything. Sure. Um, but it's what I enjoy writing. And it's also the kind of um, stories that I enjoy reading too. So I think um, someone said a, a while back that in another podcast interview that like you can't fight the kind of writer that you are and like you'll most people spend a lot of time fighting it um when they're thinking about like the market or selling books um and i certainly still would like to sell books (laughs) um but it, it you know if you are essentially making art for yourself and um to find a better connection with the world. You can't really um, fight your your own artistic impulses forever. So right. this collection is kind of about finding that part of myself and accepting the fact that I'm a Borkor author. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm glad you mentioned that because I, I think I was listening to that interview yesterday. It was the maybe the other people interview that you mm. did which was a, a great uh, a great conversation that you folks had, and I uh, um, should probably put it in the episode description so folks can listen to you a little bit more. Okay. But I love this this sort of proclamation, right, that, that one has to make of themselves to say, this is, this is what I do, this is my perspective, and the way that you own it here is really, really empowering and exciting. But it, all, it kind of, in okay. a way, though, <laughs> there's this this beautiful honesty in the work that doesn't resonate with Borkor. <laughs> that, that is, that is so, okay. All right, cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, I love that there is a drive that is built in that is not like an inherent Western plot, you know, beginning, middle and end, mm-hmm. but, but there's, there's ruminations that are deep and they have their own questions. And at least the characters that I read there, they were, there, there was a grief, there was a loneliness, or perhaps there was, there was something that they still needed to overcome in some respects. And, but the way that you went about it was, it didn't feel, it didn't, didn't feel Western, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm curious of what, what you were reading when you first started writing, or what are some, some, if there is a legacy of, of writer that you want to join, um, or, or maybe writers that inspired you to to see the world in this fashion or if this was very much what you fashioned on your own no i definitely was influenced by other authors i think and as i've um found more authors um outside of yeah the western canon or even contemporary american literature i have felt some validation in the kind of stories that i like to read and write Mm -hmm. um i'm a fan of a lot of uh southeast asian writers um I love Han Kang. I love Sayaka uh, Murata. I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing these names. You know, they're just like <laughs> books that I find in the bookstore and pick up and connect to, but haven't, you know, really studied in uh, like an academic sense or anything. I just, you know, it's just mm-hmm. my own uh, whims of what I like to read. But I mm-hmm. have found that a lot of uh, Japanese writers I tend to connect with more than um than American authors. Uh, I just read a really great book, Tokyo Ueno Station. Um, and see, I wish that I had these right in front of me so <laughs> I could reference the authors. Um, but one of my 
goals for this year is to read more authors in translation. Mm. Um, but I think the first writer who's, um, yeah, sort of like non-Western, this is a, an American author, but um, Ruth Ozeki is a Japanese-American author. And I, I think I really connected to her writing um, as sort of the bridge toward non-Western storylines, you mm. know, um, where it isn't quite so hero's journey and um, using the the character to fight against external obstacles um, and not necessarily having to have the typical uh, beginning, middle, end structure that we're really used to and that a lot of uh, Western readers find satisfying. Yeah. So could you give me an example of one of the stories in the collection that maybe you you found a way into or how one of those stories began and if there is another semblance of structure or if you see it in that way at all um because clearly you know we're not seeing a western kind of structure but what are the patterns that guide you as you're writing a story like this um usually it's just a, a moment in time where i have um I, I imagine something usually based on an interaction that I, I have uh, personally or that I observe. Um, like this second story, Boys to Men, that um, maybe <laughs> you read yeah, since it's an earlier one. Um, yeah, thanks. Uh, that one, I remember I got the idea when I was at, because um, I'm, I'm a teacher at a student's um, Christmas concert, <laughs> and I was just like observing all of the families watching their children and, you know, sibling relationships there. Mm. Um, and it just made me think about uh, how fraught those sibling relationships can be and how you really try to help your family. And it can be really painful and difficult when um, those who are in pain, like, don't want your help, but you want to help. And, and people don't always know how to help in, in the way that the person who they perceive to need help needs it yeah. um and just how that those dynamics um could play out uh, in a, a character so that's kind of where i imagined that character who is a singer trying really uh hard to connect with his brother who struggles with addiction um and then the first story waiting i mean i think that's probably one that's pretty um non uh non-hero's journey type Western <laughs> uh, narrative arc because it's it's really just about a woman at a nature center imagining things and that's the whole story and I was kind of cautioned against that being the first story because it might be a little off-putting to readers who are like oh this woman's just imagining things that's it but uh, you know that's that's the kind of writing but it's so wonderful it sets the tone very early on and you say this is what it's going to be this is really the energy that we're yeah. coming at this with and i that's that's what i applaud about this collection that it, it really follows its own intuition and i wish that we could do more of that as as creatives or at least pass that on to hmm. people because like you were saying in, in maybe the other podcast we feel like we have this responsibility to to find the plot to make it work on mm -hmm. a mechanical level rather than just being as true as humanly possible to the intuition that is making us an artist in the first place or a storyteller. So if we can kind of expand for just a moment on 
how long it took to produce this book and, and really assemble these pieces uh, over time. Can you describe a bit of what that process was like, putting these stories together into a collection? I was just flipping through it before we got on this call, thinking about, okay, which of these stories was actually the first that I wrote? Um, and I think I think it was the story with Gunn, which is which I wrote, I believe, like seven years ago. Um, and since then, I, I've definitely picked up speed with writing these nature trail stories in the last five years since moving from Southeast Michigan to um, the Shenandoah Valley and, and where there are a lot of mountains, <laughs> part of the Blue Ridge Mountain. And yeah, I'm, I'm really blessed to be in a place where there's a lot of access to nature now. So that had me thinking about how I craved that in Michigan and um, started writing more characters in these spaces. Um, because, yeah, Waiting is based on a, a place in Michigan. Boys to Men is too. But I think I was just thinking about them more as I was spending a lot of time taking walks. <laughs> mm -hmm. And then when I noticed, um, probably three or four years ago, I, I noticed that I, I was writing all of these stories. I'm like, hey, why not? I actually, <laughs> it started as like a joke on Twitter. I'm like, if I wrote a story collection of only stories about people walking on nature trails, like that would be the worst career move ever. But now I kind of <laughs> want to do it. <laughs> um, yeah. And I, I think a lot of good art starts as a joke. And so this kind of was like a joke or like a challenge with myself in a way. So mm. then I started more intentionally writing these stories of the, over the last few years um, with the aim to put them into a collection. Oh, that's beautiful because it does reveal something about the moment, right? Where you're like, Oh, this is too silly to actually make any impact or too silly to be a thing. And yeah, as you yeah. say, usually that tends to be the stronger idea because it's bold out of left yes. field. Yeah. And way more exciting to write than the thing that you're supposed to be writing, which. You right. Know, yeah, right. Which ends up feeling a little hollow if you're trying to pursue some yeah. structure, follow, you know, a guide. Right. Um, that, that you're reading about how to write a novel. Um, I took an online writing class with Rachel Yoder um, like a, a year ago or so. Um, and she said something like that too. Like the, the, the ideas that sound the most ridiculous and like stupid <laughs> are usually the best ones. Um, and her, I don't know if you're familiar with her book, Night Bitch. It's excellent. No, and it's it about a great. woman. <laughs> yeah, it's about a woman turning into a dog. And that's Whoa. like, and she's a new mom and, and she just becomes feral at night and, and becomes literally becomes a dog. And wow. I think that was connected to her idea. Like, oh, this is the most ridiculous idea, but it's <laughs> this beautiful, like deep and emotional book, despite what a, a silly sort of premise it sounds like. Oh, I can't wait to I check it that out. Stuff. That sounds amazing. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> Especially when it delves into the absurd. I'm just like, I'm right there. This, that's where I want to live. Yeah, same. <laughs> so speaking of the construction of the book and, and seeing these pieces come together, as you were putting this collection into one thing, you're also an educator. You're busy teaching a whole bunch. How does this gel together as you're, as you're making time to write and make this happen? Well, I think that's where the short story form is really wonderful. If you're a writer with another full-time job, 
um, because I don't really, you know, I've written a handful of novels, but mostly I write those during the summer. I mean, Mm. I'm very lucky to have summers off as a teacher. Um, And that's when I can think about long-term story structure. But, um, you know, during the school year, I can only really write when I, I I don't really force myself to write a whole lot. I don't write every day. It's just kind of when I get the impulse and when I get a story idea. And that, like we've said, is like usually what's the best is when you're you're following an impulse. Um, Putting it together was difficult. Like my last book, Whimsy, I was I was editing that during the school year as well. Um, and so that can be kind of draining. Like I, um, I don't really talk about my writing, like at work, like most of my coworkers don't know I'm a writer and, Mm -hmm. um, I don't really talk in my day-to-day life a whole lot about the balance of that. So sometimes I feel like I'm, I'm doing that in secret and like everyone thinks I, I I don't really have a social life and I'm (laughs) like, well, it's cause I'm. I'm working on writing all the time, <laughs> but uh, it's okay if you just think my life is really boring. It, it kind of is, so that's fine. <laughs> but it's it's a productive and fulfilling life in your own way because I kind of feel the same yeah. way that you mm-hmm. have to make concessions. You know, at a certain point, yeah. there's there's people that are not going to understand the journey of having to bring something forth, and that means not going out to hang out with somebody that particular day because this thing is due. Or you got to you got to make sure that it goes out into the world. Um, But it's something that fascinates me because I've been of this mindset that there is little glory in the process, you know, and everyone's expecting the output to be like this saving grace thing. Mm -hmm. But as working creatives, we have to create our own sort of wins and and the things that help us along the way. And I'm interested in knowing what those things are for you, those little victories that allowed you to finish this, to make this a reality? I mean, the little victories feel most victorious when it's really just like finishing a story and reading it again and being excited by my own writing. And I think that's probably the case for a lot of artists, like that the Mm -hmm. best feeling is, is going back to your own art and feeling an emotional response to it. That's the most exciting thing. Right. Um, I mean, of course, when when you publish and and you hear from folks who've read it and have connected with your writing, that's also amazing. I mean, re- the, really, those are the two best feelings, I think, like connecting with and exciting yourself and <laughs> and somebody else. Um, but also just writing it too, getting a good idea is like the best high. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. So looking back on what came before nature trail stories you wrote a work called whimsy and going from from a novel because that was a novel correct yeah novella so short novella novel so Mm -hmm. still a a standalone project going into into this next work what were some things that you learned from the previous project that you brought on or maybe some mistakes that you vowed not to make again well, I've written like three other novels, um, which those I really plotted and tried to structure and sit down and work on every day and and really crank out. Um, Whimsy was, uh, those have not sold, you know, those were not <laughs> necessarily, um, I don't know, marketable or, or my <laughs> best work. Um, but I approached Whimsy differently because I started writing it as a collected 
or as a linked short story collection. So I think I just, you know, as, as a writer, like I do better when I approach things as short pieces mm-hmm. and looking at them as, as scenes. And that's kind of what I did when I was writing that novella. I mean, afterward, after I had a draft of the stories, I definitely filled in some gaps and thought about the overall nar- um, narrative arc. Um, but that was in some ways similar, um, but with a story collection where the characters are and the the overarching storyline is not continuous um there's definitely more freedom in getting to explore different types of characters Mm. and different types of scenarios you know i was interested in in challenging myself to try to write different types of characters because if they're all on nature to be the same person or that's going to get really boring and uh, (laughs) you know the same reality um so that was that was different, but I would say in the actual writing process of sitting down and writing a story it was pretty similar to how I wrote Whimsy. And it seems to be that I'm discovering that's kind of where the magic is for me, um, which I think is really helpful when you <laughs> when you figure out where you're <laughs> right. what's the way in. Yeah. Was there a point in time when you were first getting started or not not just in this work, but maybe earlier on that you that you stopped writing altogether, or uh, a moment where you decided to step away from writing any time in your life. I haven't really hit that point yet. Maybe I will. I'm trying to be at peace with the fact that it may come, <laughs> mm-hmm. and it probably will come, and and that that shouldn't mean that I'm n- never going to write again. Because uh, I've seen that happen with with other friends who get really upset. I, I mean, certainly there's times when weeks will go by and I I won't write, and mm-hmm. I'll notice I I don't feel great, and even my husband will notice. Like <laughs> you really need to write. Like you're getting you're getting weird. You need to write <laughs> to like help you be a functional and happy and calm person. Right. Um. So for me, it is pretty therapeutic. So I kind of need it, whether I'm writing with the aim to publish or not. Um, I haven't really gone through um, too many periods where I, I, or not very long periods where I stopped writing or I thought I would never write again. Mm-hmm. I've certainly come through periods of um, frustration with the publishing process mm. um, and, and considered like, oh, I'm just, I like, I quit. I don't want to <laughs> try to publish anymore. I'm going to keep writing, but I, you know, screw this other BS because it's too frustrating, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's real. It's real, and I think even the most uh, the people we deem to be the most successful writers and artists like go through those um, periods. We just, uh, you know, we don't always see them. Yeah, and it's something that I I think that is worth acknowledging on the podcast, you know. And I ask as many people as I can because it is difficult to walk away from something when it's a compulsion, when it's a a need that is more than just, I'm going to get this thing so that I can get all the attention or whatever. It's, it's an actual Mm -hmm. physical need to do some writing, but I'm also glad that you mentioned publishing because I wanted to ask you what the process of submitting this work was like and what kind of ups and downs you experienced during that process. 
Yeah, well, they're still ongoing because a couple of my most recent stories that are in this collection are on submission with some mm. literary journals. So when I get um, rejections for those, I'm like, oh, shoot, these are about <laughs> to be in a book in the world. Yikes, you know. Um, and of course, that, you know, publishing in literary journals is super competitive and so subjective editors are usually volunteers and don't get paid for it and are combing through hundreds of stories in their own free time. Um, so I try to take that with a grain of salt, but it it can be difficult thinking, mm -hmm. you know, anytime you get a rejection, it's, it's hard not to have at least a split second of, oh, this is shit, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, but, and, and the publishing process, like my, um, road has been pretty meandering toward that. Um, Whimsy was supposed to be published with an indie press in 2017, and then that press folded, oh. and then I um, ended up working with the editors who I previously worked with in this, with this press who started their own, um, their own publishing uh, company, and they ended up publishing Whimsy. Um, and then with Nature Trail Stories, I had submitted it um, just kind of like slush pile to some literary journals. Um, I do have an agent, but it would probably shock no one that he was like, we can't sell this <laughs> <laughs> uh, to like the big five market, at sure. least, you know. <laughs> um, so I was really lucky to do a reading with Josh Dale, who um, is the founding editor of 30 West, which is the um, indie publisher that's putting out Nature Trail Stories. Um, in, um, well, last year. And, um, so I, I actually, I interviewed one of his authors after that. Um, and then he approached me and said, Hey, do you have anything you want to submit? And mm. then I was like, yeah, actually I'm working on this collection. What do you, <laughs> what do you think? You know, I know this is pretty niche and not everything's everyone's thing. So, um, but he was excited about the idea. So, uh, I feel very grateful to indie presses because they do make space for these stories that aren't as typical or uh, formulaic as the big five really competitive publishing market mm -hmm. um, sometimes demands. Yeah, and you, it seems that you have a pretty level head about this where you acknowledge the type of work it is and then you say, this is not the type of work that will reach a whole bunch of people or that needs to, I mean, it, it, yeah. it has a specific, you know, kind of, kind of need, but d is that, is that something that you've grown accustomed to when you recognize the writing as it comes out of you? Like you, you just say, this one may not really land in this particular market. This belongs somewhere else. I mean, cause that takes a lot of self-awareness. I think a lot of us, you know, <laughs> we write something, we think it's gold, you know, and it's going to go and, and yeah. do all kinds <laughs> of stuff. But how does one acquire that? Um, I mean, I think it comes from experience. Like I've been trying to, you know, I've been submitting my writing for publication for about 10 years now. Mm. And, um, I, so I think, yeah, every rejection you get comes with humility. <laughs> um, and I also just try really hard not to think about publication at all while I'm writing. Otherwise it, it does seem to flatten what I'm writing. Mm. Um, and just go where the excitement is for me rather than trying to anticipate what the excitement is 
for the market because also you can write a novel with the market in mind and then it's not going to come out for several years and and it, mm. we're going to be living in a different world so if you write yeah. for the, the world like the world's going to change faster than your writing can keep up mm -hmm. um so that's definitely part of it i i i submitted or i i applied to a few mfa writing programs over the years and i have um some of my closest writing writer friends have been in mfa programs and i'm kind of grateful that i never got into one because mm. i think those like I found writing community um, mostly online, mm -hmm. which has been great. But I think in that sort of competitive environment, or it sounds competitive, at least uh, from what I've heard from some peers, I think that's probably harder to keep a level head about it and um, not get too worked up about publishing or not. Mm -hmm. um, it also helps that I have a day job that I don't have to rely financially on my writing. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think all of that together helps me to, to keep a level head and, um, not put too much of my identity and ego, um, reliant on my own career success, quote unquote, yeah. um, as we would typically consider artistic success to be. I think that you've really articulated this so well because i try to ask people especially working class people how they how they manage right the expectations of success and things of that nature i was going to ask you later but you covered that so well that i'm not going to ask you that again yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but i do want to ask you about your work your day job and how that informs your writing if it does at all do you think there are some lessons that you've taken in uh, and they've made their way into the way that you work or in the stories that you tell? Yeah, definitely. I've been a, a teacher in public schools for 10 years now. Um, and I think it's, it's always been an interesting experience because I think a lot of workplaces are their own bubbles and, and different industries. You mostly interact with people who are really similar to you. Um, and I think, you know, public schools are like one of the few places where they're microcosms of, of the community you're in and you mm. get to know every type of person that's living in your community. Um, so I think interacting with students in that way, like that's uh, really wonderful for like my perspective, I think on my own career, but also just um, absor absorbing the world. Cause if you're <laughs> going to make art and going to write like, um, you need to interact with the world in some capacity. Um, otherwise, you're not really going to have anything to write about. <laughs> um, Whimsy was about a teacher. So that was more like more directly inspired by my first couple of years teaching. Um, now I'm a reading specialist at an elementary school. Mm. And so I work with uh, students who um, struggle to learn how to read um, or have other reading dis uh, difficulties or disabilities. So I, it's been really interesting. I've, I've just been doing that for about a year now, but it is interesting to see how different people interact with, with text and when it's, you know, frustrating, but also like, even when you struggle to read, everyone loves story. And, um, so that's something that's interesting to me. And I think maybe also helps me be less precious about what the writing is like. Um, because I, I 
find it really abhorrent when people are are like um I guess I don't know how to how to word that after using the word a uh, strong word like abhorrent but um <laughs> just let it I, out I find it off-putting <laughs> when um people are like uh, pretentious and classicist mm. about types of writing and I see that also like working with kids I see that in like the literary community toward more like genre fiction but also toward kid lit young adult authors and i just i like i appreciate stories in every form and i think that's probably in part in um influenced by my job um and that mm. i'm a I, i'm a, you know elementary reading specialist and not an english professor working with grad students or something you know right. um so i i also just like try I, I love to try different things with writing too. I, I did write a middle grade novel this past year, mm. like just for fun and just to try it. And because I noticed, especially after the pandemic or well, the pandemic still happening, but um, post those really interrupted schooling years, um, a lot of students are really struggling to learn how to read. Mm. And we need more texts that are interesting to older students who are what we would think of as as um, lower level um, re reading um, ability. So that's something I'm interested in and something I've been uh, experimenting with is writing what are called like high-low books. So, mm. um, so if I may uh, pry on that a little bit, because this is such mm -hmm. a fascinating topic, I think, are there ingredients, additional ingredients that would make in your thinking, a successful, mm -hmm. uh, palatable book for this audience, what would that look like? What you know, like what what would it need to have to be to be effective for children who who are just learning to read or struggling to yeah. read, but are a little bit older? Yeah, um, there are some things that I've noticed in working with uh, students who are learning to read who are a bit older, um, and that is. One like one thing that I, I integrated into this um, middle grade novel is uh, a, when a sentence ends, the line ends and you go to another line. Because if you're if you're working, if your brain is working really hard to decode words, how they sound and their meaning, um, you don't have as much cognitive space for noticing punctuation. Mm. Um, so students who are just learning to read usually you know they'll run from one sentence to another so uh this is why picture books usually are at the end of a sentence there's a whole space and then you start a new sentence on a new line or mm. you don't have a whole lot of text on each page um also considering the font like um i, I know everyone loves to dunk on comic sans but it's been found to be the easiest font for um people with dyslexia to read really and serif fonts, yeah. Um, serif fonts are really difficult. And when you look at also like, you know, some of the letters like A or G are just different in some fonts. It, when you think about seeing that from someone who's just trying to learn letters and the sounds that are associated with those letters, mm -hmm. um, that that's just another obstacle. So there's really things that I think as adult readers or fluent readers, um, we take for granted that add a cognitive load to a new reader or a struggling reader. Um, so those are a few things that I think of, but also just having older characters, but writing about their lives in simpler words. 
um, mm-hmm. because, you know, I have some like fourth graders who were at the beginning of the year just learning the alphabet and the letter sounds. And now they're reading books, but the books I give them are from the the first grade book inventory at our school. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they don't, they, they, they find they're embarrassed to bring those books back to class. So right. when I'm with them, they'll read them, you know, this is the cat, the cat is on the mat or about characters that are supposed to be four and five mm. and they're 10 years old and nearly teenagers or preteens. Um, they find that really embarrassing and that's just another obstacle to um, to practicing reading and you got to practice reading to become a better reader. So I do think we need more books of that variety, um, especially in this day and age. That is so powerful. And I think that it's definitely should be a call to action to people who are who are writing, who have the ability to tell stories like that, because it doesn't take Mm -hmm. much for somebody who knows what they're doing to make that shift and look at that audience and see if there's something that could be done on a larger scale, because we're not talking about isolated, you know, people, you know, or a, a small number of folks who are struggling with this. But right. It's, I imagine, I mean, in this country, it's got to be a lot of them, right? Yeah, absolutely. And growing. Yeah. So, wow. The, you just, uh, you're, you're giving me ideas, uh, but I, <laughs> anyway, let, let's focus on, uh, on nature stories here. All right. Let me know when you write your book. <laughs> I, no, I, I would like to, I mean, it's an interest of mine because I've written, uh, children's plays, uh, that are more educational in nature oh. and, and that's really kind of more my wheelhouse, but this seems like yeah. like a necessary thing to address. Um, so it, it's mm-hmm. that's going to stick in my mind for a very long time. Um, and if I could um, add to that real quick, another thing that is an obstacle to those books getting to children is that um, big five publishers who, you know, like Penguin Random House and you know, all the big whatever it is, big four or whatever now, um, they do not publish those books. Mm. I'm trying to publish this book uh, because it does not fit within a certain age group and the way the publishing industry is right now. They have expectations for the length of the book, the way the book looks Mm -hmm. based upon the age group. And so if you're in an age group and you're not reading at that, you know, expected age level reading level, like if you go into Barnes and Noble, you're kind of out of luck Mm -hmm. trying to find a book that's going to be accessible to you. They have specialty presses that make decodable books, but those are mostly accessible to educators. And so if you're a parent and you're trying to find a book for your kid, it's going to be really hard. And I think that's adding to the frustration too, and adding to the sense of shame for parents and kids when their kids are struggling to read. That is... I wanted to add that in there because that's a little known... Um, the, the, the industry needs to change. Yeah. This is a massive issue. I mean, and you've really nailed it, uh, right on the head there. Something has to be done because it's not a small number of kids. This is a majority Mm -hmm. of our children now in this country that are Mm -hmm. experiencing these difficulties. So, uh, yeah, you've definitely burned that right in the back of my mind. So I'm going to be... I'm going to be definitely looking into that and seeing if there's any avenues or possibilities. So, uh, coming back to the work that you've, that you've put together, can you tell me of 
what the the reception has been or what uh how has it been received at this time um my new collection or you mean my work in general your new collection well it's not out yet um so just uh oh shoot i've only heard from blurbers (laughs) and yeah and and folks with advanced copies um but i think in general i tend to kind of i think this maybe aligns with this sense of like western storytelling versus not i think western is also associated with the masculine and i I never really anticipated as many men liking my work as Mm. as is the case but i think you know like we're all humans and we all have emotions and i think we take for granted that um men would connect with like uh sensitive narratives and introspective narratives um but i think that was the case for whimsy and uh with the stories that I've published too, I've kind of like been pleasantly surprised at how many men have connected to my stories. Um, that probably also has to do with the fact that as, you know, like a female author, you, you maybe feel a little bit pigeonholed, like what you Mm. write is considered women's fiction. And so you, you know, don't think that you may be, um, as available to getting readers who are not within your own identity and identity group. And I know that's true for, um, you know, a lot of identity groups and minorities as well. Right. Well, that's wonderful to hear. I definitely, uh, enjoyed, you know, what I've read so far of, of the collection because, and I've said this before on, on the podcast, I think that some of us are looking for a language to things that we don't know how to really mm. express. And something like this is so mm-hmm. internal, very meditative. And that is something that men, unfortunately, are not given in in this uh in the society yeah. and i think it's it's powerful in that way to be mindful of your time you've answered all my other ones really well so i would only ask you what would you say to somebody who's just starting out as a writer who is doubting their intuition who doesn't know where to begin or whether they should keep reading plot books or about structure rather than getting hmm. things down on paper That's tough because I was just an English teacher and teaching creative writing classes to high school students. And I've had students and sometimes their parents inquire about careers in creative writing. And I don't know that I could in good conscience, like encourage students to pursue it as a career. I think, you know, if you pursue art, like do it for yourself first because there's so little control that you have over your ability to commodify and make money off of it. Um, So I think I would just say like, read as much as possible. I know that's kind of an overused um, piece of advice, but it's so true and read widely and see what you like and, and reflect on what you're reading and then just write the stuff that you feel like you have to write. Um, And that's, Uh, you know, when I was giving feedback to young writers in past years, I just really tried to highlight what they were doing uniquely, like what was unique about their perspective, because especially when you're younger, you don't know what's different about your lived experience. You don't know what's different about your perspective. Um, And it's hard to 
value that, especially at that developmental level when you just want to fit in. But making good art is like the opposite of trying to fit in. It's like trying to figure out why you're different and why what you have to express is uh, unique and, and needs to be said. I couldn't agree more. And that's a really awesome note to end on. So Shannon, I want to thank you for this, uh, this reminder that we are okay following our intuition and being true to our perspective. And for Mm -hmm. the work that you've done as an educator, that is so important. And yeah, I mean, very necessary right now. And for this amazing collection, nature trail stories, uh, which is amazing so far. So I urge everyone to go check it out. It's something new, something refreshing, and uh, it's it's the right the right thing to do. Go support indie creatives. Uh, thank you, Shannon, so much. <laughs> this has been awesome. Thank you so much. Oh, it was so fun talking to you. I really, really appreciate it. Wonderful. Well, I will let you enjoy the rest of your Sunday, but please take care and I will bug you on the internet. Yes, please do. Yeah, I would love to read your writing, especially for children. Like if I, I'm going to have to investigate how I how I can check out your plays. And, uh, well, I got to get them produced first. But that's yeah, really cool. it's been a while. Well, you can email them to me. <laughs> we'll see. We'll I'd see. love to read them. Well, thank you so much for your time, Shannon. And uh, I hope you have a wonderful day. Talk soon. Thank you. You too. Take care. Bye. Bye.